Okay, we continue now with the discussion of the Bahu Dhatta Sutra, the discourse on many kind development. If you remember when we began the study of the Sutra, the Buddha says that for a monk to be called a wise man, he should be skilled in four subjects, in the elements or dhatas, in the bases or ayatana, in dependent origination, and then forth in what is possible and impossible. This is refers to a special kind of knowledge of the Buddha, actually the first of the Tathagata, the Tathagata's special powers of knowledge by which he can know what things are possible in the world and what things are impossible. And then when the Buddha explains this, then those who listen to his teaching and investigate it can also understand these points. Okay, here we now come to paragraph 12 in the Sutta. Now the Buddha will introduce this theme of what is possible and what is impossible. <coughs> and he begins by just explaining the distinction between a an ordinary person or a whirlwind, that's a putujana, and a person who has attained right view, that is somebody who has reached the minimum level of stream entry. The Pali expression is ditti sampanna. So a Ditti Sampano, Ditti Sampana person. This is one who has penetrated to the right view of the Buddha's teaching, the right view of the Dhamma, one who has seen through direct experience the truth of the teaching. And so such a person has complete certainty about the rightness of the Dhamma, the truthfulness of the Dhamma. Even though this person has not yet completed the practice, he might be still a stream-enterer, even with seven lives to go. But such a person has seen the truth and therefore is ensured definitely of final deliverance, final liberation. The Putujana is the common person or ordinary person. And this means anybody below the level of one on the path to stream entry. Somebody who has not even achieved the first bhaga or path is a whirlwind. And so now the Buddha mentions three differences in regard to their understanding, their understanding of reality. That is, he says, that the monk understands it is impossible, it cannot happen that a person who has attained right view could treat 
any formation, any samkara as permanent. There is no such possibility. But he understands that an ordinary person might treat some formations as permanent. That is possible. Then the second is that a person who has attained right view cannot treat any formation, any sankara as pleasurable, as a real source of lasting happiness. Super. But he also understands that it is possible for an ordinary person to treat some sankara, some formation, as pleasurable. And the third difference is that it cannot happen that a person possessing or who has attained to right view could treat anything at all as a self, taking it to be I or mine. Whereas it is possible that an ordinary person, a worldling, might treat something as self. That is possible. Okay, so this distinction between the two refers to their approach to what we call the three characteristics of existence. All, the Buddha teaches that all conditioned things, all formations are impermanent, all formations are unpleasurable or source of suffering, and all dhammas, all phenomena, are non-self, not self, not I or mine. See, there's a distinction between the first two characteristics and the third, in that impermanence and suffering apply only to sankharas, to conditioned things. They do not apply to nibbana. Nibbana is unconditioned. It's not a sankhara. And nibbana is in a way you can say it's permanent, that it never comes to an end. And nibbana is not only pleasurable, but it's the supreme happiness. So one doesn't say nibbana is impermanent, nibbana is suffering. But even nibbana is not a self. I think we have a good example in the world we live, in the world we play. If you have no peace, I have no peace. And these no peace are not anicca, they are not dukkha, not but they are anatta. And that makes the difference between these the, the sabe sankara anicca, sabe sankara dukkha, sabe dhamma anatta. That is the reason. So if you are reflecting on these, you will find out that these no these are not subject to decay, they are not subject to the dentist and to the wind, <laughs> but they are not, these no these are not I and mine. I mean this is the simile which is uh, very no teasable. <coughs> okay, so the 
person who has achieved right view has seen for himself with perfect clarity that all sankharas are impermanent and suffering, that everything is not self. But, he has a word that's translated treat. To treat something as permanent, treat something as pleasurable. I think the Pali word is upagachati, which means to approach. And what it actually means is to consider, to conceive. And so a person who is still a stream enterer, a person who has attained to view but is not yet an arhant, can still act as if things are permanent, and he could still be seeking pleasure in worldly enjoyment. Somebody who is a stream enterer or a once-returner, for example, is they get married, they have families, he will be concerned, he might even be anxious whether his children get sick, let my children not die, let them get well. If tragedy besets his family, he might be beset by sorrow. And so a stream enterer is still subject to some extent to misconceptions about things being permanent and pleasurable. But when he stops to reflect upon it, to examine these things, then he realizes that all of these conditioned things are impermanent. They're all really sources of suffering. But a worldling's mind doesn't work like that. A worldling is always becomes always attached to the idea that things are something is permanent. Something is going to get worldly is going to give me happiness. That something is myself what I am, mine, or I. Okay, but when the person who is attained to view develops that understanding to the extent of our hardship, then even the slightest inclination to regard things as permanent or as pleasurable or as self is eliminated. It's really only the Arahant who has complete, perfect, right understanding consistently in every respect. Okay, now we come to another set of differences between the person who has attained to view and the world. This concerns not understanding like the first set, but conduct. And there are five types of actions which are called in the Buddhist text, they're called the five terrible sins. Well, literally, they are the sinful acts, evil acts, with immediate retribution, in that they will bring immediately a rebirth in hell, the lowest realm. One is matricide, killing one's own mother. The second is parasite, killing one's own father. The third is killing an arahant, 
a fully purified, fully liberated being. And this happened in the Buddha's time, this happened to the monk, the chief disciple Mahamogalana, a group of hooligans incited by some rival ascetics, murdered the Arahant Angulimala. Perhaps it, I'm sorry, the Arahant Mahamogalana. Perhaps at later times also there have been people who have killed Arahants. And that is a very terrible crime, sin, which leads to an immediate rebirth in hell. Now it's impossible for anybody to kill a Samasambhuta. The perfectly enlightened one always lives to the full extent of his normal lifetime. But it is possible for somebody to harbor hatred and malice against a Buddha and then to injure him in some way that causes the blood to flow. And if somebody does that, that is also one of these terrible sins. During the lifetime of our Buddha, this was done by his evil cousin, Devadatta. Devadatta, according to the traditional story, was very envious of the Buddha. He, though he began as maybe as an earnest, sincere monk, but eventually ambition took root in his mind and he had the idea that if he could just eliminate the Buddha, then he would become the chief of the Sangha. He would become the Buddha. <laughs> and so he tried in various ways to plot against the Buddha, even commissioning assassins to take the Buddha's life, but none of these plots were successful. When the assassins came into the presence of the Buddha, then they saw for themselves the beauty of the Buddha's spiritual presence and they threw away their weapons and they became disciples of the Buddha. So finally the Devadatta considered, even the second time the Devadatta tried to get an elephant drunk with liquor and then he arranged for that elephant to be released just when the Buddha was walking through the town. This was the elephant Nalagiri. And so when the elephant was released, he came charging towards the Buddha. And Ananda was walking next to the Buddha. He saw the elephant dashing towards them. He thought that the Buddha was going to be killed. And he said to the Buddha, please, Venerable Sir, you step aside let me meet the elephant head on. But the Buddha said, don't worry Ananda, everything will be all right. Then when the elephant came so close to the Buddha, <laughs> then instead of trampling on the master, he was immediately awestruck by the power of the Buddha's metta and karuna, and so then he just bowed down and worshipped the Buddha. So on the second occasion, Devadatta's plans were foiled. So then Devadatta thought that since nothing else is working, wor working out, let me kill the Buddha myself. So one time when the Buddha was staying at the Vulture's Peak mountain and he was walking back and forth on a sakman, on a walkway, 
meditating. Devadatta climbed up to the top of the mountain and he took a boulder, a large boulder, and hurled it down at the Buddha in order that the Buddha would be killed under, would be struck by the boulder and killed. But it just so happened, just at that moment, through the protective power of the Buddha's karma, that some other stone was dislodged and struck into the boulder and deflected it so that it couldn't hit the Buddha. But one chip of stone broke off from that boulder and flew towards the Buddha and struck his foot and broke the skin so that blood came out from the Buddha's wound. And because of that, Devadatta accumulated this very powerful, unwholesome karma. And then the fifth terrible deed is to bring about a schism in the Sangha when the Sangha is living together in unity. For somebody to try to cause a division in the Sangha so that it becomes split into two factions. Is this, uh, this is in the Sangha as a whole, or does it mean a group of monks living in one place? I would understand this really to mean the Sangha as a whole. Oh. That's the way I would understand it. I think it is only regarding the Arya Sangha. Because I thought the thing is obvious that there will be all this uh, something like that going on. It has not that power. But like that's up? The Arya Sangha is going to get broken up. That is so. Ah, that may be a particular subject. Yeah. A particular subject may give rise to even to the Arya Sangha to have different opinions. They might have different the schism is different from a difference of opinion. There can be differences of opinion. What a schism means is that the two branches of the Sangha feel that there's such a wide gulf in their understanding and their, that their relationship has been broken to such an extent that they no longer want to perform the, it's called Sangha Kama, the ecclesiastical acts of the Sangha together. Um, but it seems to me a rather strange situation because then one would have to, if one holds it creating any kind of division in the Sangha, so they hold the act separately, is a Sangha Veda, then our friend King Mankut in Thailand, <laughs> who was a monk for 26 years, he founded a new sect in Thailand. But there are arguments in that tradition to try to explain why that is not a schism in the Sangha. Otherwise, it's not a very bright future for their leader. <laughs> <laughs> it is connected to a political matter. Excuse me? It is connected to a political matter. To a political matter. Yes. It seems it's indifferent what the cause is, the actual cause. The decisive point is that there are two, one group of monks that's living in harmony and 
through the malicious intention of some other party, the two groups are split in such a way that they don't want to have to perform their ecclesiastical acts together as one body. Then it becomes two, uh, two groups within the Sangha. So the particular cause is irrelevant, would be the intention to divide up. For, well, it can be, there can be a Sangha, a schism in the Sangha from other causes, apart from the malicious intention of Sangha. But for there to be that terrible karma to come upon anybody, the Sangha has to be split through his machination. And you think it means the Sangha as a whole? I have to say I'm not really, I'm rather vague about that thing. It would seem maybe at the time the Guru was speaking, the Sangha was relatively small. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And also like the original case split in the Sangha again goes back to Deva Dakta. This is when Deva Dakta, I think when his attempt to kill the Buddha had failed, then he was still the Buddhist monk. And he when he tried to assassinate the Buddha, then he was doing all of this secretly not revealing this to the Buddha, even though the Buddha would have known what was going on. So then Devadatta thought that finally the way to get, if he couldn't take over the control of the whole Sangha himself, what he would do would be to split the Sangha so that he could at least become the chief of one division of the Sangha. And the way he went about this was to, <laughs> to try to take advantage of the fact that people usually admire austerity. They like recluses, ascetics, who are practicing extreme ascetic practices. And from the standpoint of the India at that time, the other Indian groups of wanderers, the Buddhist order was pretty easygoing. And so Devadatta appealed to the Buddha to make five firm rules for binding on all the monks. At the time, some monks were living in the forest, other monks were living in the towns, in town monasteries. And so Devadatta said to the Buddha, please make a rule so that monks will have to live always exclusively in the forest. No more towns will emerge. At the time, some monks were living in huts and buildings. Other monks were living under trees. Devadatta wanted a rule to be passed so that all the monks would have to live under trees. At the time, some monks were wearing robes made out of rags that they had collected. Other monks were accepting ready-made robes that were offered by lay people. Devadatta didn't like that. He wanted a rule passed that the monks would have to wear only robes that they had stitched together from cast-off rags. No, I don't think that was a rule. No, no, no. No, no, no. You mean to impose silence on me? No, no, that wasn't there. The fourth was that 
Some monks were going pindapata, other monks were accepting invitations from lay people to the houses for alms, or lay people would bring food to the monastery and offer to the monks. Devadatta didn't like that. He wanted all the monks to go pindapata. And then the fifth rule was that some monks at the time may have been vegetarian, other monks would accept offerings of meat and fish. Devadatta wanted all the monks to be vegetarian. And then to this the Buddha said that he allowed the monks to accept meat or fish as long as the, they did not see for themselves that the animal was killed especially for their sake, that they didn't hear any report that this was done, or that they didn't have any suspicion that the animal was killed, especially for themselves. And so in this way, the Buddha rejected Devadatta's five demands. But when he did so, Devadatta wasn't sad and disappointed. Rather, he was happy because this was exactly what he wanted. He wanted, he actually was using this as a pretext for getting the Buddha to make, it, to make an explicit refusal and then using the Buddha's refusal as a means for driving a wedge into the Sangha in order to gain followers for himself. So then Devadatta, when the Buddha refused, he went to numbers of the monks and he said, you see, this Buddha claims to be enlightened, but really he's just slipped into luxury and enjoyment, just like any other worldling, whereas I and these monks around me, we are following the real strict ascetic practices. So, if you guys, if you monks, venerable ones, if you want to live a soft and easy life, just passing your days in idleness, you follow the Buddha. If you really want to undertake the austere, strict practices in order to gain enlightenment, I'm leaving, you come and you follow me. And so there were many monks in the order who were just either newly ordained or they didn't really have the proper appreciation of the Buddha's middle way. And so when they heard this, then they compared, they saw the Buddha accepting invitations for meals, they saw the Buddha living in this Gantakuri, the perfume cottage, very comfortably, and they saw Devadatta going on Pindapata, wearing rag robes, living under a tree, and so they decided to follow Devadatta. In this way, this schism took place in the Sangha. So that was the original case of Sangha Veda. Okay, so that is the fifth terrible crime. Okay, then there's one other action. This is not a terrible crime in any way, but it's something which, well first, okay, let's roll back a little bit. 
okay, there are these five terrible crimes and the Buddha says that it is impossible, it cannot happen that a person who has attained to right view, that is a stream enterer or one fire, could commit any of these terrible crimes. Whereas a whirling, one who has not yet reached stream entry, might commit one of these deeds. That is possible. Okay, then the sixth type of action which distinguishes the one attained to view from the whirling concerns their relation to a spiritual teacher. That is, a person who is still a whirling might point out some other spiritual teacher but might point to some spiritual teacher other than the Buddha as his teacher. Whereas one who has attained to view will never acknowledge any other spiritual master than the Buddha. This means that there might be somebody who is really considers himself a strongly committed Buddhist, devout Buddhist, but if he's still a whirling, even in this life, he might meet some other religious master. Maybe he hears that somebody like Sai Baba in India has various m mystical powers, and so if he sees Sai Baba, then he might acknowledge truly Sai Baba is the true teacher. Or else some, maybe some Christian missionaries might move in and start preaching salvation comes through Jesus Christ. He died on the cross to save us. If you convert to Christianity, you will be saved and spend eternity in heaven. And so if he hears this, then the mind might be swayed and he might embrace Christianity. But somebody who has attained to right view has seen the truth of the Dhamma and so such a person knows that the Buddha is the one, the perfectly enlightened one, the one who has seen into the real nature of things. And so such a person, even if you twist his arm, if you threaten him with a sword, will never acknowledge anybody else but the Buddha as his master. And this distinction between the two holds not only for this lifetime, but even in future lifetimes. When somebody who has attained to right view is reborn in some other future existence, again, it's impossible that he'll ever commit any of the five terrible crimes. Even a stream enterer, a reborn seven times, will never commit any of those five terrible acts. And again, the stream enterer will never point out any other spiritual teacher than the Buddha.
from this it seems, though I've never heard this actually said, that if a stream enterer is reborn in the human world, it would seem to me that he or she would always be reborn into a Buddhist family. It seems to make sense. You don't think so? Um, it can also be thirty times like for instance some people who come from far away to join Buddhism. Yeah. By very strange ways. So I think uh, there is much more in the karma. that we can take so many infinite possibilities yeah. on the way, yeah. but it will definitely come to be yeah, yeah. the, the teaching. Yeah. Anyway, perhaps if, it, if somebody who has attained the right view through some strange twist of karma is reborn in a non-Buddhist family, or let's say in another part of the world where there is not immediate or constant access to Buddhism, Maybe through the family, when they bring him up as a child, he might go to church, to the mosque, or to the, say, Kogel, and maybe just to follow, following the parents, maybe will worship the other deities, but they'll never acknowledge the god or another religious teacher as being a true master. Maybe when that person reaches the age of reason, He'll always feel some dissatisfaction with the teaching of that religion until he meets the Buddha Dhamma. I think, think that the right? memory will play, play a very important role that he will remember facts like Anatta Patishasanapada as, as a, a picture of Buddha himself. I, when he hears about this somewhere, and he only sees such a and says, what is this stone man doing there, sitting? That alone may bring him yeah. in this direction. Now because this picture is, we have another picture, that is the picture here, the Bodhisattva God, and then we have the European picture that is symbolized by the Rodin, the thinker, but he is in front of hell, he is looking like this, no? So these three pictures we have, by this is really introspection. Okay, so these are six ways in regard to conduct that the person attained the view and the worldling differ from one another. Okay, now we're in paragraph 14, we come to some other differences. Actually, these are not differences between the worldling and the Ditti Sampano, but these are other things which are impossible and which cannot happen. Okay, it cannot happen that two perfectly enlightened Buddhas arise in one world system, in the same world system. But it is possible, in fact it does happen, that one fully enlightened one will arise within one world system. Sir, what is a world system? 
That's an interesting question. A world system is depicted in Buddhism seems to consist of many, many different um, actually it's not made clear because it's said in the text that there are different types of world systems. There is a thousand-fold world system, a ten-thousand-fold world system, and a simple world system. I would have to understand here a simple world system as being what is intended and the point would be that in a single world system I would take it that there is one human world and sort of surrounding that one human world there will be one set of sense-fair heavenly worlds, one set of Brahma worlds, one set of Rupa formless worlds, and then one set of the animal realm. I think we could get an answer by having a etymological research yeah. Yeah. in the Pali word of that particular kalpa, no? Or but it's not kalpa. Yeah, whatever it is, that it's is yeah. uh, like in kalpa, it means also something else. So here we have, a, have not only an idea Outside, we have yeah. also an idea of the world inside. Kalpa. Kalpa. Mm, no, the meaning of Lokadatu, I think it's fair, fairly clear, but there are different types of Lokadatu. And here, because it seems to me that, okay, a Lokadatu, if it consists, corresponds to something like a galaxy, let's suppose. Okay, there are other stars in, in this, there are billions of stars in this galaxy. And it would seem that there should be no reason why in some other star system within this galaxy, a Buddha could not arise. In the Melinda Panha, the questions of King Melinda, this question comes up, why two Buddhas cannot arise in the same world system? Then Nagasena replies, if there were two Buddhas in the same world system, then they would have different groups of followers and people would be confused seeing two Buddhas in the same world. And so that seems to imply that they are living within some kind of geographical proximity of each other. So if we have this thousand-fold world system or ten-thousand-fold world system, that would correspond to the modern galaxy. And I would say in this galaxy, let's say the Milky Way, there will be billions and billions of star systems, solar systems. And I would think it very likely, or at least very possible, that there will be human life within those world systems and within any world system where there are, or at least beings corresponding to the human level. And wherever there are beings who have the facilities of human beings, then it seems that a Samasambuddha can arise within that. I think it's like we are, can only have one heart. Yeah. Even when you speak about these infinite yeah. spaces, we have only one heart. Yeah. So there can be only one Buddha. Even in one galaxy. Anyway, this is a matter about which I confess I'm certain. <laughs> The texts don't mention Buddhas in any other world. Text. Oh, then 
Then in some of the later texts, one has mention of 24 Buddhas, up to 28 Buddhas. Maybe still later texts will take the chronology back further to still earlier Buddhas. <laughs> but maybe at the risk of being a heretic, I have to say the Mahayana Sutras do mention that there are other world systems, many other world systems besides this one, and they speak of other Buddhas arising within those world systems. <laughs> so I might be <laughs> excommunicated by the Theravada side <laughs> at this point. To myself, I would have to agree with the Mahayana Sutras on that point. It just seems to me there's <laughs> a point that I don't think we could either ever prove <laughs> one way or another within our lifetime. I mean, I, I think it makes sense because there is a parallel between the physics and the yeah. metaphysics. Yeah. But that is infinite possibilities, the Odyssey has also infinite yeah, yeah. But we, we are assured in other terms that when Buddhas arrive in the past or in the coming ones in the future, they always teach exactly the same thing. That is so, yeah, yeah. What is the difference? The teacher must be teaching a small difference. No, uh, of course the actual suttas they teach. But well, the vector, they will teach a different vector. Yes, I don't know. Because we are changing. So also that has to change. But I th the principles of the teaching, what you might call the Dhamma proper, always has to be the same. The Four Noble Truths, Eight Noble Eightfold Path, the Three Characteristics of Existence, Dependent Origination, uh, Thirty-Seven Factor Requisites of Enlightenment. I asked my teacher, my late teacher, Man must go forest and think. Woman must do the work. Then everything is okay. <laughs> <laughs> And that is quite deep because we are coming to that point sooner or later. <laughs> that is the last resort for Okay, then the next statement makes the same point about what's called the wheel-turning monarch. The wheel-turning monarch is like the virtuous universal ruler according to traditional Buddhist texts. He is one who unites the whole world under the reign of righteousness. Okay, so that is... Yeah. Is this wheel-turning monarch, he seems to be exclusively mythological. That is to say, yeah. there isn't any particular one ever pointed out to that is so, yeah. Within historical times, nope. It forms like an ideal. But according to the Buddhist text, within sort of the distant past, there were such rulers. They generally turn out to be the, the being who is to become eventually the Buddha Gautama. <laughs> so the, you could say that the wheel-turning monarch is like the secular counterpart of a Samasambuddha. Just as the Buddha is the king, the master in the spiritual domain, 
the wheel-turning monarch is the master in the political or secular domain. Should we compare it to uh, the United Nations? Or the United Nations? Or something like that. But the United Nations is a very fractured and yeah, problematic. It would be wrong. Okay, um, now we come to paragraph 15. This is the, the hard part. <laughs> okay, the Buddha here says, it is impossible, it cannot happen that a woman could be an accomplished one, a fully enlightened one. There is no such possibility. But it is possible that a man might be an accomplished one, a fully enlightened one, there is such a possibility. Okay, I think the meaning of this has to be properly understood. And it doesn't mean that somebody who is now a woman cannot become a Samasambuddha in the future. But the meaning is that when a Samasambuddha appears in the world, the Buddha always appears as a man, takes on the form of a man. And I think the reason for this is based on within the particular social organization, at least at the time of India in which the Buddha arose, where the, in the sphere of political and social life, the man was the more authoritative figure. So since in the social organization, the man exercises social and political authority, the leadership, then within the spiritual domain, the supreme leader will have to appear in the form of a man. And so that's why the Buddha becomes, that's why a Samasam Buddha is always a man. President and Prime Minister, <laughs> women, maybe this argument doesn't cut much water. <laughs> of course, a woman can become an, from anything from stream enterer up to arahant. Does this seem a reasonable explanation? Yes, that is correct, because when, when a woman can become a sadaka woman, that means an arahant with analytical knowledge. <laughs> We're talking about Sama Sambhuta. Okay, next. Okay, says that it is impossible, it cannot happen that a woman could become a wheel-turning monarch because he is the supreme authority in the political school. As I said, we have to qualify that piece That a woman could occupy the position of Saka. Saka is the king of the Devas and the Tavatinsa world. That a woman could occupy the position of Mara. Mara is the chief of the evil forces, so that's always a man. 
or that a woman could occupy the position of Brahma. Brahma is the chief of the Brahma world. Okay, but a man can occupy these positions. Okay, now we come paragraph 16. Now we shift from the sphere of what we call personal matters to the connection between actions and their results. And one who has reached right view will understand directly and immediately that particular types of karma will produce their corresponding fruits, not the fruits appropriate to the opposite type of karma. What this means more specifically is that good bodily conduct, good verbal conduct, good mental conduct will always have to produce pleasant and beneficial fruits. Such good karma can never produce undesirable, disagreeable results. Okay, so that is basically the understanding of the lawfulness of karma the fixed connection between acts and their results. Good action produces good results, bad action produces bad results. One with right view sees this principle as infallible, as, or, or he sees this principle with infallible knowledge. Okay, then the next paragraph states something which seems to be the same, but it's a little bit different in its implications. It's better that I read it out loud. Okay, we're in paragraph 17. It is impossible, it cannot happen, that a person engaging in bodily, verbal, and or mental misconduct could on that account, for that reason, be reborn in a happy destination in the heavenly world. But it is possible that a person engaging in bodily, verbal, mental misconduct might, on that account, for that reason, be reborn after death in a realm of misery, in a miserable realm, even in hell. And then the next paragraph states the converse. It is impossible, it cannot happen, that a person engaging in good conduct could on that account, for that reason, be reborn in a miserable realm. Whereas it is possible that a person who engages in good conduct might on that account, for that reason, be reborn in a happy realm in the heavenly world. 
Now it's important to understand the subtlety in the Buddha's statement here. It doesn't mean that a person who engages in misconduct and bad action will definitely be reborn in a bad realm. In fact, a person who engages in bad conduct, even what seem, might seem to be very bad conduct, bodily, verbal, mental misconduct, might be reborn in a heavenly world, very happy world. And a person who engages in good conduct, very pure, virtuous conduct, might be reborn in a bad realm, even in a state of misery. And so if one views this superficially, it might seem that there is no connection between actions and their results. But the key, the important words here are the phrase, on that account, for that reason. That is, a person might be engaging in bad actions, and so it's very probable that such a person will be heading for a bad rebirth. But it is also possible that that person might have some accumulation of good karma from the past, which will overpower the bad actions and bring a rebirth in a happy realm. It doesn't mean that the person has escaped the bad karma. Eventually that bad karma will catch up with him, but temporarily that <coughs> old stock of good karma has somehow come up to the surface at the time of death and brought a happy rebirth. Or it might be that even though the person has engaged in many bad deeds throughout life, very shortly before death, maybe a change of mind might take place. The person might undergo a feeling of compunction for his bad deeds and develop a mind of, say, sadha or confidence in the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, and maybe a strong yearning to practice virtuous deeds. And so as a result of that good karma created very shortly before death, the bad person might be reborn in a happy realm. But it doesn't mean that he escapes the bad karma, but just that there is a temporary obstruction to the fruition of that bad karma. Similarly, a person might be very good throughout life, but it might happen at the time of death that some little stock of bad karma from the past comes up to the surface and brings a bad rebirth. Or else it might happen that close to the time of death, the good person might maybe engage in some bad deed or become very angry or be, develop a very strong greed and clinging to his property or his family. And so those thoughts, those unwholesome thoughts that arise close to the time of death might generate some bad karma which will bring a bad rebirth. But again, it doesn't mean that the person has cheated himself from that accumulation of good karma. Eventually that good karma 
can gain the opportunity to write them. What holds, though, would, as an invariable law, is that any bodily, verbal, or mental wrong deed, when it ripens, will bring bad results, unpleasant fruits. And any good deeds, bodily, verbal, or mental good deeds, when it ripens, will bring good results. But our own minds are a constantly changing accumulation of good and bad tendencies. And until one becomes a stream enterer, one can never say definitely that one has cut off all the bad karma which might bring a rebirth in the lower world. Only the stream enterer has that assurance of completely escaping from rebirth in the three lower realms, the hell, the hells, the animal realm, or the sphere of the practice. Remedy for? I think we would say that the only complete remedy from the, or complete immunity from the ripening of unwholesome karma as a force determining rebirth is to achieve stream entry. But until that is done, basically what one has to do is to accumulate as much wholesome karma as possible. And especially to strengthen the mind through developing the mind in bhavana, through developing the mind in wholesome qualities. Because when the mind, even if one is engaging in many good deeds, bodily actions and so on, giving in charity, going to the temple, taking precepts, helping the poor. If the mind is not well developed, then the mind can change suddenly, unexpectedly. Particularly at a critical moment, like in sickness and death, then one might get dragged down in depression, and then the accumulation of unwholesome mental tendencies might become stronger until it overpowers the good tendencies. But if one practices cultivating the wholesome mind deliberately as a meditative exercise, then that builds up an extra protective shield in the mind so that even when the body is afflicted at the time of illness, the time of death, then one can direct the mind in a wholesome direction and that wholesome inclination of the mind will take over and govern the process of rebirth. That would be my understanding. There is also the possibility of creating a heavy karma, but the kusala karma, yeah. which is of course jhana. Yeah, that is so. Uh, and if that is, that may change from immediate fruit, also in the same way as when, when somebody is killing the mother, he can't grow anymore on yeah. the bus because he's completely confused. On the opposite, when he attained to jhana, he has a certain understanding of certain things. So that creates also immediately a fruit, which is probably then when somebody has lived a little life like this, when he crafts yeah. that. Yeah, if somebody has attained the jhana, or a jhana, and still has, you say, mastery of it at the time of death. It doesn't mean that he's in the jhana actually at the time of death, 
but he hasn't fallen away from it through negligence, then when death takes place, that jhanic consciousness will come up into the rebirth process, into the death process, and govern the rebirth, so that he will be reborn in the Brahma Loka. Uh, because that, uh, that psychological mechanism is already similar in no. the death consciousness. No. Okay, that will be our discussion of the Sutta. Are there any questions based on any other points raised in the discussion today? Any questions, comments? Okay, if there's no questions, then we adjoin
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.